A constant refrain in the debate over charter schools is that they fall short when it comes to serving students with special needs. Critics allege that charters serve fewer such students than their district counterparts, and that many of them don't do right by those who do enroll. But two new articles in Education Next cast doubt on that narrative, or at least on whether it applies in the city of Boston. The first provides gold standard evidence that attending a charter school in Boston gives students with disabilities and English learners a major academic boost. The second looks in depth at how one of the city's largest charter networks, Excel Academy Charter Schools, serves students with special needs. I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and joining me today are three educators from Excel Academy Charter Schools. Owen Stearns is the network's chief executive officer, Sarah Kanchewitz is director of student supports, and Lucero Castillo is a sixth grade English language specialist. And I'm grateful to all three of them for taking time away from their work to speak with me today. Owen, Sarah, Lucero, welcome to the Ednext podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So these stories have a bit of a man bites dog feel to them. The idea that we might look to charter schools for lessons in serving students with special needs runs counter to the conventional wisdom. So I'm excited to unpack it with you three today. Owen, why don't you start by telling us a bit about Excel Academy Charter Schools as an organization? Sure, Marty, thanks again for having us. So Excel was founded in 2003. We serve about 1,400 students in East Boston and Chelsea from fifth to 12th grades. We have three uh, smaller middle schools, all feeding one high school. Um, East Boston and Chelsea have historically been uh, recent immigrant communities, and so um, many of our students today are recent immigrants, and strong majority of them are from Latinx families. And I, I think our primary goal as a school is to be both rigorous and inclusive, uh, and this that speaks a lot to the conversation we're going to have today around students with special needs, but also around having low attrition uh, and a really high bar of excellence for students both academically, behaviorally, um, you know, in life. And in preparing for this interview, I saw that the fact that 19% of Excel students, I believe, are students with disabilities is featured prominently on the network's website, suggesting that being open to all, inclusive, as you say, is an important part of the network's identity. Is that correct? And if so, has it always been the case? It's definitely correct. And no, it has not always been the case. About 10 years ago, we had about 10% of our students uh, were students with special needs. And it's, so it's about doubled uh, over that time period. Um, and I think you know, there are a few reasons for that. One was, in those early years, we didn't have much of a reputation at all. And I think if you're a parent of a student with special needs, you might be reluctant to send your kid to a sort of brand new school that doesn't, you're not really sure how it's going to work out. Um, and I think secondly, over time, we developed a reputation not just as a strong school, but as a strong school for students with special needs. And I think um, East Boston and Chelsea are both small communities where people talk a lot. And as word got out that we were serving students well, I think we started to see significant increases uh, in, our, in our population of students with special needs. And then um, I guess two other like external things. One, um, there was a common application for families to apply to charter schools that was launched a few years ago, which just increased access for families from all over Boston. And we think that had an impact. And we saw, you know, three or four percentage points of the 10 coming from that over the last few years. Um, and then you know, while there wasn't a specific piece of regulation that came from the state, there was definitely a time in these sort of early teens when we, we and I think other charters uh, in Boston and across the Commonwealth 
felt a little more pressure or maybe more than a little more pressure from DESE, Department of Education, uh, around closing the gap that did, did exist between charter schools and traditional public schools around students with special needs. Um, and I think you know, we, t- we took that to heart. So in the study that accompanies the article on Excel, Tufts University economist Elizabeth Setrin looks at all charter schools in Boston over more than a decade, from 2004 to 2015. She finds, first, that students with disabilities and English learners are just as likely as other students to apply to and enroll in a charter school in Boston. Second, that attending a charter school basically doubles the chances that a student who was designated as special education or an English learner at the time of the admissions lottery ultimately loses that classification and therefore access to specialized services. And third, she finds that these students nonetheless make very large academic gains compared to their peers who applied to a charter school but didn't win the admissions lottery. In fact, the gains for students from attending a charter school like Excel in the Boston area, at least as measured by state test scores, are as large as those for students without special needs. So I was hoping we could go through each of those findings, starting with recruitment. You don't have direct control over who applies for a seat at Excel, but under state law, as Owen just alluded to, you are accountable for serving a student body that's representative of the districts you serve, and I assume that doesn't happen by accident. So what steps, Sarah, do you take to ensure that students with disabilities and English learners apply to Excel in the first place? I think we do a number of things um, to make that happen. First of all, we make sure that all of our recruitment material that's out there in the world, both print and in person, is accessible to our families. Um, So it's translated or we have an interpreter present um, at all of our welcome events um, and all of our flyers as well. We also uh, highlight prominently in our student stories on our website, you know, diverse learners, uh, students who are emerging bilinguals, uh, students who do have a disability um, similar to that. And we also make sure to highlight that we are a school that's open to all and that we don't discriminate in our charter lottery or in any other way. Um, So I think that's done a lot to make sure that students uh, and families can see students, um, no matter who they are, attending Excel and being successful there when they're thinking about the application process. And let's turn to what happens then when students enroll. Setrin finds that many students who are classified as having special needs when they apply ultimately lose that status after becoming students at Excel. As the director of student supports, what do you think explains that finding? Why is it the case that so many students are being reclassified Mm -hmm. once they enroll? Well, I will speak for special education or students with disabilities. I think there's two potential sort of narratives that can come from that. One could hear that and think, oh, well, the charter school is just sort of, you know, deleting or erasing students' plans, removing their access to the specialized services that they need because they just don't offer those, they're not interested in that. Um, And I can only speak for Excel, but I can say that that is not the narrative. That's not what's happening um, at Excel. I think we are privileged to have resources allocated for really thorough and thoughtful um, evaluations for our students who have disabilities. Those happen every three years at any school, Um, but we really value that process and we are able to provide rigorous individualized supports so that students can make really strong progress and 
sometimes in the second half of middle school or in high school step down from an IEP because they just no longer need the specially designed instruction that they did need when they got to us. Yeah, the article quotes you as saying, it's not like your disability ever goes away. It's really about do you still qualify for special ed? And I think many might think that those two questions, do you have a disability and do you qualify for special ed, are one and the same. How do they differ? I think the idea that a disability is something that someone is supposed to overcome and move on from and then sort of leave in the dust is not a helpful or a positive uh, idea. And it's not one that I want my students to internalize. Uh, Having a disability or a learning difference, uh, however you want to sort of name it, is part of who a person is. And so it's something to be worked with and incorporated into their identity and sort of figured out in what ways does this bring me strength and in what ways is this something I need to sort of figure out how to work around, work with, um, accommodate. And if we do that in the right way for certain students, they will no longer need the special education services in order to be successful in school. It's not that the disability has gone away, it's that they don't need the services and the supports in order to access their education. Um, And hopefully that comes with a high level of independence that's really preparing them for whatever they wanna do after high school. Regardless of whether students retain that classification as a student with a disability, The one thing that comes through very clearly in the article and really in Sachin's research as well is Excel's commitment to inclusion. So I believe 80% of students with disabilities are in general education classrooms compared to 65% statewide and I think a much lower number in cities like Boston. Inclusion is something that sounds great in theory but also can be very challenging in practice and some researchers studying the issue generally, not just in the charter sector, have worried about the demands it places on general education teachers, its consequences for students' non-disabled peers. What have you learned from your work at Excel about what it takes to make inclusion work? Well, I think what you can't do is just drop a student Um, who is a newer English language learner or who is a student with a disability, you cannot just drop them into a general education classroom and call that inclusion. It requires purposeful planning. It requires staffing it in the right way. It requires training those teachers in the right way and allocating the resources that are necessary to make it happen. Um, You know, the Boston Teachers Union has a big push right now about staffing inclusion right. So it's not just an issue that charters face. It's an issue that happens um, you know, across all school settings. I think the balance that Excel has been able to strike is really high expectations for all students with really targeted and robust supports so that students who are coming in with a disability or maybe just have you know, a learning gap that they have from their schooling before Excel, all of those students are able to meet those rigorous expectations over time. Um, It's not an immediate, everyone comes in, here are your inclusion teachers, and everyone gets a 100% on the first unit assessment. Um, It definitely takes time and thought and collaboration, and that is what makes it challenging. Um, But when you commit to it and you make sure that all of the teachers and folks on your team are also committed to it, it is possible. Lucero, let's turn to how the network supports English learners, or as you all refer to them, emerging bilinguals. 
And let's start with that choice of wording, emerging bilingual rather than English learner. What is that intended to convey? Uh, I mean, when you look at English language learner, yes, the goal is to support students in their English development, but that is not like its only purpose. Um, with emerging bilingual, that like phrasing, um, it's more to do with how they are coming into their bilingualism. So it's like honoring their skills that they bring with them, whether it's their Spanish or like Portuguese skills, Arabic skills, whatever that may be. And then coupled with like they're now like learning the English language. And at the end you get students who are bilingual, members of our community, and like both of those being such assets to them and assets to our school. One of the things the Commonwealth now allows students to do is earn a seal of biliteracy in order to recognize that many English learners have a second language ultimately as an asset. Is that something that Excel encourages? Uh, we definitely do encourage that. I mean, uh, one of the first things that I have um, our emerging bilinguals do is to write letters to their content teachers to, to uh, explain kind of where they're coming from and some of those assets that they bring, which can mean like their Spanish skills or their skills um, that they've learned from coming to us from different parts of like the country and like what schooling was like for them there. Um, so it's definitely something that we value. And um, we also take steps to whenever we do get students who are coming to us, um, who are like recently immigrated uh, to our school and to like the U.S., um, we also make sure that we provide the right supports for them. Um, and tell us about your own role. You just referred to your students, but I understand that you're an English language specialist. So how does you in that role interact with students' classroom teachers? Um, so I do a lot of like inclusion support, um, so kind of like what Sarah was mentioning earlier. Um, we collaborate with the content teacher, with the learning specialists, um, and to see kind of the supports that we're going to like provide our students. Um, so that means that I'm in the classroom when they have their content classes. Um, I pull them for small group support. Um, I, we also make sure that we do like preview sessions. So if there's vocabulary that's going to come up in that um, lesson, we go over it beforehand. Um, so we really think about like what the steps that we need to do before that lesson even happens. And when it comes to students who are English learners or emerging bilinguals losing that classification, Unlike in the case of students with disabilities, that comes from students demonstrating their proficiency on a statewide exam. Is that right. the case? We do have access, yes. Mm -hmm. So um, when students uh, like get a 4.3 or above in their access, um, they are designated as FEL, so which is former English language learner. Um, to us, the way we've also said it is like they are our bilingual students. Um, and so that's something that like we do a celebration at the end. Um, and it's also not like we like they took a test, they're done, they're great, they don't need our support. It's also like how to help them in that like transitional period now. Um, so we still sometimes do have students who even though they've like exited out, um, they, we still bring them in and they still work with our other um, students who are still in the program and they get the support, but then they are also like leveraging their strengths with our other um, students as well. So I want to take note of the fact that as a consequence of the success that Excel and other Boston charter schools have had in supporting emerging bilinguals and becoming bilingual, in supporting students with disabilities such that they no longer need specialized supports, as a result of that, at any point in time, data may show that Excel or some of its peer charter organizations in Boston have fewer students in those categories and perhaps that they spend less on those services than do district schools. But I think those statistics would be misleading as to who Excel is serving and how well you serve them. Owen, 
that must be frustrating, especially when you see how those kinds of statistics were wielded in the debate over lifting the cap on charter schools in Massachusetts. Um, yes. Um, I wish we lived in an age where you know, truth and statistics and facts actually won political debates, but I don't think we live in that time. Um, and maybe there never is a time when that's the case. Um, I think, although I would say, like, it's somewhat of a subtle thing. You would need to be a pretty sophisticated uh, you know, researcher of this work, I think, to really get to that level of nuance. And I think I would just say, like, it's why an article like this and a study like that you guys have done is so helpful. It actually gets into, like, what's actually going on that can, can lead to statistics that look like charter schools might be canceling out students with disabilities. And I think, as I hope you're hearing from today, we really don't. And uh, I think the data is pretty clear about that. So this new evidence, as you're suggesting, makes it clear that charter schools in Boston are providing access to students with disabilities and English learners as a whole. But I'm curious to know if there are still some students for whom Excel would not be the best fit. And what happens when a student like that applies for and wins a seat? I can speak to that a little bit. Um, anytime a student is admitted to Excel who has an individualized education plan, which is the sort of special education designation paperwork, um, one of our special ed administrators meets with the student and the family over the summer to learn a little bit more about them, welcome them to the community, um, review their previous paperwork, and, and make sure that the family feels welcome. When we have uncertainty about our ability to serve a student, that meeting is typically with me, and I want to make sure that the family understands what our offerings do look like at Excel. Um, and as we have had our population grow, uh, those, po those offerings have changed. So always in the interest of transparency, I let families know, you know, here's what our programming looks like. If your child were to come to Excel, here's the way that they would interact with our existing programming. Here's the ways in which we would have to push or stretch our programming in order to accommodate your child. In some cases, what happens is we don't have an appropriate peer group. Um, and it's not considered best practice to have a student, you know, one-on-one -on -one with an adult all day um, as part of their school experience. They don't get the social skills, you know, it's just not, it's not really school. Um, and in some cases, there are students who need a lot of specialized supports, therapeutic supports, medical supports um, that we just don't offer right now. And so in those cases, I make sure that the family understands that they could choose to, you know, withdraw their application and, and go the way they came, but that that's not a requirement. Um, and what we do is we partner with the student's school district of residence to provide the appropriate services. Often, that means that the student returns to the sort of school district program that is the appropriate fit for them in their home school district, and that Excel maintains sort of responsibility for that student. We would pay for that, um, and we would also conduct, we, we sort of like monitor program quality to make sure that it's the appropriate fit for that student. So a student may still officially be an Excel student. Mm -hmm. You're just like a school district would using a private or outside placement if that turns out to be what's most appropriate to meet that student's needs. Yes, 
we always start with the school district of residence. That's sort of part of the guidance from the Department of Ed, and, and it is considered best practice to start there before looking for something more restrictive or more specialized, but that is what we do. And a family, by taking that option of remaining an Excel student, might be leaving open the possibility of having the student join Excel if their supports were no longer needed or if that became, over time, the most appropriate placement. That's right. In, in the last few years since this has become more of a, a practice and policy, we've had students uh, attend school in Chelsea, in Lynn, and in Boston Public Schools. And right now, we've had one student return to Excel, and another student is planning on returning in the next school year. So it does happen. Oh, and I'm curious about the financial implications of that kind of arrangement. How does what you receive as a result of serving that student compare to what you need to pay another district in order to have the student be well served. Yeah, it, it, there's a there's a significant gap. Um, the per pupil we get is somewhere between seventeen and twenty thousand dollars a year, although going up thanks to the Student Opportunity Act. Um, and I, you know, it depends on the student, but for most of these out of district placements, it's double that. At least. At least at least double that. Um, so it it does create. Uh, an awkward, at the least, you know, financial incentive or disincentive to serve, serve students with significant special needs that, you know, if in some uh, version of the world, this podcast and the article goes viral and it becomes like, you know, we are known as the place to go for students with significant needs. And we have, you know, instead of 20%, we have 30% or more, or we or, or a number of students who are in a sub-separate placement goes up significantly. It does have a significant impact on the overall financial model, and it essentially creates incentives for us to start sending messages of like, no, we actually can't handle it anymore, which is not the message that we will send or want to send. Um, if the incentives, incentives were such like, actually, we, the state, are going to pay you what it takes to educate this child, that would totally change or do away with that financial you know, awkwardness and disincentive that exists. Yeah, looking at the debate over this topic of charters and how well they serve students with special needs nationally, one of the things I've always thought, it does seem to be the case that there are some examples of charter schools that have not been open to all. Totally. What we learn from that is that we're probably not providing enough of an incentive for uh, schools to be open to those comers. And so to some extent, we can learn from the behavior of charter schools uh, in responding to those incentives about the funding that may be required to serve those students well. Yeah, and it's obviously it's not just an issue charters face. A district school faces the same issue, um, and I think I'm sure you've, you've seen that as well. And I, I think you'd said this earlier, but you know, a smaller district, like we are essentially a small district, uh, that challenge can become more acute more quickly because you can't sort of spread out and you know, amortize essentially the cost of the students over a large district. My guests today have been Owen Stearns, Sarah Kantrowitz, and Lucero Castillo, all of Excel Academy Charter Schools. The article profiling the network's support of students with disabilities and English learners, called Inclusion in Action, will appear in the spring 2020 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Owen, Sarah, Lucero, congratulations on your good work and thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.